Welcome to Shield Maidens, Women of the Norse World, the podcast that celebrates the remarkable women of the Viking Age. From fierce warriors and powerful queens to wise seers and cunning goddesses, these women left an indelible mark on history. Join authors Johanna Wittenberg and K.S. Barton each month as we explore the stories, achievements, and impact of Norse women. Welcome to Shield Maidens, Women of the Norse World. This is episode 11, in which Johanna and I discuss women in the Anglo-Saxon world. Johanna and I thought we'd follow our discussion from last month with Patricia Bracewell with a further look at women in Anglo-Saxon England. We learned a lot from Patricia about Emma of Normandy and her life in England, and as we'll discover, the Anglo-Saxons were not all that different from the Norse people. I'm K.S. Barton, and I'm the author of the Norse Family series in which a young daughter of a Jarl and a Viking warrior are caught in a deadly blood feud between two families. And with me is Johanna Wittenberg. Hi, Johanna. Hello, Kim. It's great to see you. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you, too. Well, I'm Johanna Wittenberg, author of the Norse Women series, the story of a real Norse queen who ruled alone for nearly 20 years during the early Viking Age. Uh, and I also want to mention that book six of my series is out. It just released, and the title is The Queen of War. And it's all about uh, Osa, and one of her powerful old enemies comes back after her. Um, he's been secretly watching Tromoy, probing for any weakness. Ooh. And when Osa ventures into his waters, Horik strikes, capturing her and imprisoning her. So it should be an interesting situation. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Before we dig in to what life was like for women in Anglo-Saxon England, let's take a moment to look at the similarities between the world of Anglo-Saxon England and Scandinavia at the same time, because there were quite a few similarities. And that's why we've decided that we would jump over to England, because the Anglo-Saxon life really wasn't all that different from what it was right. like in, in North Scandinavia. So first, let's take a look at who were the Anglo-Saxons. After the Romans pulled out of England in the 5th century, it left a power vacuum, which was eventually filled by some Germanic peoples, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, or Jutes. They were mostly from what is now Northern Germany and Denmark. And at first, they were raiders, much like the Vikings would be several centuries later. Very ironic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that a few centuries later, the Anglo-Saxons are the ones fighting the Vikings and trying to keep them from doing the same thing. But eventually, they the Anglo-Saxons settled in England and integrated with the local population. And at the time, there were, was it seven different kingdoms? At least, yes, yeah. many. Yeah, it took a while before England became one consolidated country. Even after the Vikings came, then there was the Dane law, which like half of England was under Viking Danish rule. And then part of the southern part was English. So, yeah, it took a while. And that was one of the things that made it conquerable, that it was divided, uh, okay. that they were, it was very tribal and they were infighting you know, amongst themselves. So they rarely could put up a unified front to any invaders. Right. And if I remember correctly, and I should have looked this up, but I remember reading a lot of like King Arthur stories and some stories where they had invited, was it yes. Hengist and Horsa? 
and they really did. That is documented. Yes. So they, a king invited them to help him conquer his neighbors or fight off his neighbors. Right. And then (laughs) that was a bad decision in hindsight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it sure was. (laughs) So, but at the time England had the, like the native Celts, and then there were still some Romans and people who were very Romanized there. And then- and then you had these Anglo-Saxons coming in too. So yeah, it must have just been a very chaotic time. It was. And ca- nothing like chaos to invite invaders. <laughs> <laughs> so then these early Anglo-Saxons brought with them their pagan beliefs. They had gods like Woden, which is just basically another name for Odin. And these gods were very, very similar to what the Vikings believed in. And But that belief system died out when the Anglo-Saxons became Christians. As many people probably know, but maybe some don't, several of our English days of the week are still named after the Norse gods. We have Tuesday, which was Tears Day. And in Old English, the word for tear was tew, T-I-W. So that's where the actual sound of Tuesday comes from rather than Tears Day. We have Wednesday, which was Woden's Day. Thursdays, Thor's Day, and Friday is either Frigg's Day or Freya's Day. It's yeah, nobody really knows. Yeah, and they do, There are some uh, schools of thought that those two goddesses were actually one, which yeah. you know, it nobody knows that for sure. Yeah, I've read some pretty good arguments. Yeah, they both the directions. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Sunday and Monday are simply Sunday and Moon Day. And then Saturday is the only one that's named for a Roman god, Saturn, because the the Scandinavian Saturday was bath day. Yeah, Lord, it still is. <laughs> I love that. And I, that, that makes me think of that. Old, and it goes around on social media occasionally about the, I think his name was John of Winchester or something. He was like a monk or a priest, and he had written about how English women needed to beware of these, <laughs> yes. you know, these Viking dandies who bathed every week and combed their hair and stuff. <laughs> Pick their nits. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but hey, you know, there are so many combs that have been found. I know. <laughs> they must have cared about grooming. Okay. Some of the similarities between the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians were their social classes. The whole idea of a, a chieftain who is a warlord, basically, who has his followers, who he gives gifts to, and then they follow him. And then these chieftains later became kings. So do you have anything you wanted to? Yeah, um, it's a, it was a kind of a tribal thing because, yeah. you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons had their all the different kingdoms because they were tribal. And that's why they were rivaling each other and set themselves up as kings, because if they weren't kings, then they were paying allegiance to another king. So that's where the eldermen came from. They they were not, they were the ruler of their kingdom, but they paid allegiance to another king. And we'll get into that later on with uh, Alfred the Great. And just like the Scandinavians, most people were ordinary farmers. Yep. They lived off the land. Women did most of the weaving and textile work. Women brewed the beer. <laughs> yes, it was quite an art. Yeah, both of them were. Yes. Yeah, and very important too. They were. Their houses were similar. 
made from wood. They had thatched roofs. Sometimes they had mud, you know, wood and mud and thatched roofs. And they had mead halls. The kings or eldermen had these giant mead halls where their warriors would gather and um, just like they did in Scandinavia. Yeah. Where they had feasts. Mm -hmm. Their feasts were very similar where they, everybody gathered and they ate and they drank and they had poets and scalds who told stories. There was singing, there was fighting. (laughs) (laughs) It was basically the same. Of course, just like any community, they had, uh, you know, merchants, smiths, bakers, tanners, you know, all those tradespeople who kept the community going. And then their languages were very similar at the time. This was before the Normans invaded England in 1066, and they brought with them their Norman French language, and that's when English started to change, and we started adding a lot of those Norman French terms. And that's one of the reasons why English is so difficult to learn. For anybody who's not English, I used to, to tutor people uh, English as, a, as a, another language, and they would constantly ask me, like, well, what is the rule for this? Or I don't understand this. And I kept, I would have to say, don't try to understand English because <laughs> <laughs> because we have old English words, we have old Norse words, we have French words, we have Latin words. We, it's just, it's, it's just a conglomeration of lots words. of borrowed words. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's a lot of words from uh, Scandinavia that we use. So, yep. Lots of place names and all kinds of, even wife. Is, yes, yes. <laughs> and is it murder? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. <laughs> so, yeah, so they probably, they would have been able to understand each other fairly well. The, as, the- as I understood it, um, Old English and Old Norse were very, very similar languages. And so all the Scandinavians could understand each other and they could understand the Anglo-Saxons quite well. And they were also relatives, because if you think about, remember the time of Charlemagne, he persecuted a king whose name I can't pronounce, Widdeklund, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but um, that king escaped from part of England, from Francia, and escaped to Denmark, where he took shelter with the Danish king, because they were cousins, so they married back and forth. They were interrelated with the, you know, the Danes, the more the Danes than anyone, I think, were very closely related with the Anglo-Saxons. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were just to the south of Denmark. And that's when, you know, Charlemagne invaded that part of Germany. And he, we won't go into that too much, but he persecuted the Anglo-Saxons. This is in the ninth century, eighth and ninth century and was trying to force them to convert to Christianity, but also to take over their land. And they fled and received help from Denmark. But it was partly because they were closely related. Mm -hmm. Well, we even discussed that last month with Patricia about how Mm -hmm. Emma was, her mother was Danish. Mm -hmm. And then she married the English king. And then then her second husband- Emma's father was Norman, right? He was a Norman. Emma's father. Oh, Emma's father. Yeah. Uh Which they were also. They had been Vikings. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) They're only like a century removed from being Vikings. Right. And then she, her second husband, Emma's second husband was Danish. Yeah. So (laughs) So, yeah, they were all very 
intermixed. Yes. Well, so back to our main subject, which is women. So women of the dark ages nowadays, they're portrayed oftentimes as chattel property without any rights or any control over their own destinies. But that is not true. That is not the way things were. During the early medieval period, or what is commonly referred to as the Dark Ages, which is from about 476 to the year 1000, or actually to the Norman Conquest, women and Anglo-Saxon women actually enjoyed far greater rights than their daughters of later times. So the question is, why do we have such a disconnect in how we perceive that time and what we believe about them? It's because many Christian, many European cultures had no written history until the coming of Christianity. And throughout the medieval period, historians were generally always Christian monks because they could write uh, and they recorded things. Uh, They often saw women as evil temptresses and inferior beings. This is during the later Middle Ages. And since they were the only people who recorded events, these men controlled the view that posterity had of women, especially powerful women. And they used this ability to record history to bring many of these women down um, and to sully their reputations, which is something we'll look at very closely in this podcast. These men were able to revise history to suit their beliefs. And even in modern times, archaeologists and historians have long overlooked and even in some cases suppressed the fact that women held power and acted with agency during this early medieval period. Their stories have been expunged, minimized, and in some cases just ignored. I think it's a really important point to remember that without that written language, they didn't really have a way to set their stories down. So that's another similarity that Anglo-Saxon people had with the Uh, pre-Christian Scandinavians is that they didn't have a written language for doing those things. They did have a written language. They had the runes, but they they didn't write down stories. They did not believe in recording history. That it was, that was all verbal. And and that was true pre-Christian times. So it was Christianity that had them start writing their annals, like the Irish annals, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, the Carolingian chronicles, all those came with Christian monks. And before that, even though they could read, they could read and write, they did not set anything down as a history. Right. And that's also why we get this view of Vikings that is so uh, like they were so much worse mm-hmm. than other people of that time period, because the people who were writing down what was happening were the monks or people from a later period. So it makes the Vikings sound like they were above and beyond more brutal than any, like the Anglo-Saxons or the the French or anybody is, like that, which they weren't. They weren't. They were, there was equal brutality on all sides. Yeah. They may have been more effective at raiding, <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't more brutal. No. So the Scandinavian laws, they weren't written down until the 12th century. As far as we know, they were all word of mouth and they used to have a person called the law speaker who was a learned man, usually, who would be at their assemblies. And he was required every year to recite one third 
of the laws to the group. And he was the one who was, you know, he was like the judge. He was the one who would rule on cases or at least advise the king to how to rule on cases that came before them because he was the one who memorized the laws. And it was a very important position. I have I have a law speaker in a scene in one of my books, but my my character, my point of view character, he's the kind of guy who just likes action. And he likes to move and stuff. And so from it's from his point of view and he's like super bored. And it's almost <laughs> like in the Charlie Brown cartoons, like he's the law speaker in his mind is like, you know, wah, 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 blah, 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 <laughs> yeah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't I totally know. I just, understand that. I just took a little different take on. I mean, they <laughs> he had respect for him. You know, there's a law speaker saying all these things and making being like a judge. But my character was just like blah blah blah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in one of my novels, I have a a, a law speaker who's starting to um, kind of lose his mind. He's so old that he's starting to kind of ramble and. Uh, ah. makes it a little embarrassing. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> because they did. I mean, they held that position for life. Yeah. Well, so it's very likely that the Anglo-Saxons shared their legal codes with the Scandinavians, the Vikings. It's very likely that the women of Scandinavia had very similar rights to the, that of the Anglo-Saxon women before the Norman conquest. And that's what makes this especially applicable to people who write about Vikings like Kim and I. And um, the poem of Beowulf really points this up. It really kind of gives you this link between the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavian cultures. So Kim, do you want to tell us about Beowulf? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about Beowulf is that it takes place in Scandinavia, and yet it's an Anglo-Saxon poem. Right. So that makes, you know, it makes it seem like it must go way back, maybe before they even came over to England. They were Absolutely. telling this story. But we have no way of knowing how far back it goes, because like we were just talking about, these stories were handed down orally. It was Beowulf is an epic poem, and they think it was written somewhere around 1000 in Old English, but it just got forgotten. And it was unknown until the early 19th century when it was translated into modern English or, well, whatever modern English was in the early <laughs> 19th century. And then in 1936, our a friend of the podcast, J.R.R. Tolkien, <laughs> wrote a scholarly paper examining Beowulf. And ever since then, it has been considered a great piece of old English literature. So I... I have a degree in English, and I had to read and study Beowulf, and it's just very. I actually love Beowulf. It's yes. it's a fun read because it it reminds me a lot of the Norse sagas because there's a lot of like real things that show up in it, but there's also fantastical stuff, you know, like like the dragon, <laughs> like a dragon and monsters and mm -hmm. Beowulf's like almost superhuman powers. He's super strong. He can stay underwater for like all day and he fights yes. underwater. And <laughs> so, but it also shows us like how the social structure worked in this particular culture. Like we said, the story is set in pre-Christian Denmark in Jaitland, which was Southern Sweden in the sixth century. And it's about Beowulf, who's a hero who comes to the aid of the Danish King Hrothgar. Hrothgar's hall has been under attack for 12 years by the monster Grendel. And Beowulf, of course, being the hero of our story, kills Grendel. And of course, a lot more happens after that. Yes, Beowulf 
fights a dragon and there's just other things that happen. But we wanted to just kind of to mention what happens in King Hrothgar's hall with Grendel because that's what concerns our topic of how Anglo-Saxon women were seen. So, and I'm using, there's a bunch of different translations of Beowulf. Tolkien even wrote one, which I've read. Seamus Henney, I think, is another person who has a famous one. But I read the Stephen Mitchell translation. I think I've read them all. (laughs) (laughs) One person we want to talk about is Waltheo. She is King Hrothgar's queen. And I just want to spell this name. And maybe if some of our listeners out there know how to speak Old English and somebody could, you know, maybe (laughs) send us a little note about how to pronounce it. It's spelled W-E-A-L-H-T-H-E-O-W. And what I kind of looked around and Waltheo seemed to be a way to say it. So that seems like a good way. That's what I'm going with. (laughs) And somewhere I read that that name translates to the words foreign slave. Oh, now I do not know if that's true, but I have read that. And I don't know how good that source is. But anyway, that's beside the point. But it's kind of odd. (laughs) Yeah, for a queen to be named something like that. Yeah, it is. My expertise is in old English is non-existence. Yeah, I I can recognize a few words here and there. Same with Old Norse, but I the the pronunciation is difficult. Yes. <laughs> so in Beowulf early on in the poem Beowulf arrives at King Hrothgar's court and Hrothgar's wife Waltheo is there and they have a feast. Like we were saying it's very similar mm-hmm. to Scandinavians, Anglo-Saxons. And one thing to note is that the poet made it clear how rich this queen was. He described her as gold adorned and jewel rich. So I just imagine this woman wearing a lot of gold jewelry with a lot of gems, like just sparkling and gleaming in the firelight. And she's also described as having a generous heart and she's versed in court manners. So that makes me think like that translation of like a foreign slave doesn't seem to It doesn't fit. make sense. Yeah. yeah. I And who knows, maybe it's not right. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, because if she's versed in court manners, she, she was probably a princess somewhere. She had to have been raised properly, unless yeah. she was a spoil of war, but that is not mentioned. Yeah, that's true. So she, as is customary, she greets all the men and she gives the first cup, the first drink to the king. And then she goes around the hall offering a drink to everyone until she gets to Beowulf. And usually the way the hall was set up was that people were seated according to their rank. I mean, I guess as a guest, Beowulf should have been treated well, but it seems like it took her a while to get to Beowulf. But anyway, <laughs> and she tells him that he's an answer to her prayers because they've been besieged by Grendel for 12 years. And this here comes this new hero who's going to take him on. And he does. Beowulf defeats the monster. And of course, they have another feast <laughs> to celebrate that. This time, King Hrothgar lavishes Beowulf with extremely rich gifts. And then the king's scald recites a poem. And after that, Waltheo rises. And similar to the first scene, the first feast, she offers her cup to King Hrothgar first, which she's supposed to do. And while she's doing this, she kind of doles out some advice to the king and to some of the men. And there isn't any indication that she's speaking out of turn or that the men are not listening to her. 
they are listening to her with respect, which is something to to notice. And at one point, Hrothgar had stated that he wanted to take Beowulf on as his son. But Walthio, she questions that and she reminds her husband in front of everybody that he already has a nephew who will look after the kingdom and their sons if Hrothgar should die. And so, as is her place. Right. She is, the queen is supposed to be the advisor to the king, the right. wise queen. Right. But so then she goes to Beowulf. And this time he is like second in line after the king. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> now he has higher status and because he's killed Grendel and he is now in the king's favor. So that's just a little tiny bit telling us just like how this social structure works. But a very important point, because it's one of the few things we have from that time period that's written down. Yeah. And he, Beowulf is given even more elaborate gifts, including a golden torque. She calls it a necklace, but the way they described it sounds more like a torque that you would well, wear Well, that's the translation, too. Yeah, that's true. Maybe a lot of people don't know what a torque is. I don't know. <laughs> so maybe she wish, Maybe. She wishes Beowulf well, and then... She with each gift, she she says these words that almost sound like a blessing on each of the gifts that Beowulf is given because she wants him to have good fortune. Hmm. And she also tells him to treat her sons well. Now that he's like this favored, um, like adopted son of their family, she wants him to treat her sons well. And at the end of the speech, she says, now do as I ask. <laughs> I mean, that's this translation. I should have looked at, at one of my other translations yeah. to see if they said the same thing. It would be interesting. But basically, she's she's important. Yes. So again, there's no indication that she's speaking out of place or that they're not going to listen to her. It's She's an important person in her own right, able to give gifts and to demand that Beowulf, if he is to remain in their good graces, he has to treat her sons well. So I know a lot of there, there's been a lot of talk about Wealthio, about how she's just all she does is take the drinks around, take the cup around for people to drink like she's just decoration. But she's not. I mean, yes, she's dressed elaborately, but that just shows her status. But when she gives this advice and when she talks to Beowulf, when she corrects her husband and tells him that, you know, he already has an heir and she's just treated with respect. Yes. Everybody can see that. So then after Beowulf kills Grendel, Grendel's mother, who doesn't have a name in the story, she's just Grendel's mother, starts to attack him. So Beowulf kills her. He leaves Hrothgar's lands and returns to his native country. And there he meets another king, King Hulak and Queen Hud. This queen is described as very young, which I thought was an interesting need to hmm. point that out. But she was, because even though she was young, she was wise an accomplished woman, free in her wealth and generous with gifts. Very this, important. Yes. In this kind of warrior culture, being generous with your gifts was a great compliment. It was actually required of this upper status. They were supposed to treat people generously. And like Waltheo, Hude presides at the feast, filling cups and caring for everyone. And Beowulf even gives her the gold necklace that Waltheo had given him. It was no, nothing was said about it, and I'm not sure about the etiquette of regifting. <laughs> I don't think it was a thing back then. No, especially it was, not it, with gold. It was interesting to me. He must have been showing her how much he respected her because he gives gives her this gold necklace. Yeah, exactly. I don't so, know. 
That's yeah. very interesting. So this is just, these are just a couple of scenes that show these queens in respected, important positions. Yes. And that was definitely carried out in other, at during the 6th century, 7th century, especially uh, England, the Anglo-Saxon, you definitely see that. I just wanted to mention too, another legend that appears in both Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian sources is that of Volander. Uh, it's in the Poetic Edda, and in Anglo-Saxon, he's called Wayland the Smith. Now, there's not a whole lot, I'm not going to go into it um, in any detail. The poem Wayland is even mentioned in Beowulf. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> so, uh, so it appears in both, but the written original written source we have is actually Scandinavian for that particular one, even though it was well-known in Anglo-Saxon England. So it's just another example of a, an epic poem that is in both cultures. Well, I think it shows just how much the, the Germanic people, the Normans, the Danes, the Scandinavians, and the English all there must have been a lot of going back and forth. That's Absolutely. one thing. You know, the scholars, in their very Anglo-centric way, you know, talk <laughs> about the Viking Age is 793 with the raid on Lindisfarne to 1020, it's 1066 with the Norman conquest. But it's like, sometimes we act as if that was the very first time that anybody had seen these Vikings. Like they were. <laughs> it, it was like they, they were trading, they were going back and forth. They were. You know, especially between Denmark and and England, but even like you know, Norway's not far from England either. And it just seems artificial to, mm -hmm. to just say, "Oh, this is when it started," as if all these English people were so shocked to see these yeah. Scandinavian people showing up on their shores. They weren't. All these they had stories, a lot of trade. Yeah, the stories, the the, the commonalities show that they were. They had to have been back and forth a lot. They were probably people who were families. You know, this right. part of the family lives in Denmark, and this part of the family lives in Essex or something like that. So, sure. Oh, I think that's really true. The diff biggest difference between Scandinavia and Anglo-Saxon England is that Anglo-Saxon England began converting to Christianity in the late sixth century, and they started producing written legal records as early as the seventh century. So there are all kinds of surviving documents like wills, charters, and deeds. Many of them reveal that before the Norman conquest, an Anglo-Saxon woman had rights that were commensurate or very nearly commensurate with a man. An Anglo-Saxon woman was eligible to inherit. She could own and control land and other property in her own right. Her property did not go into her husband's control when she got married. She could make grants of land on her own without her spouse or with her jointly with her spouse. Uh, but there's a lot of evidence of female ownership and control of the land. And one of the places we see it is in female place names in England. They, and many of them still exist today. There's place names that suggest that women were responsible for settling and clearing land, building churches, roads, and bridges. For example, Edberton, which is in Sussex, comes from a woman's name, Edber, 
and combined with the suffix for, of ton, which means settlement. Uh, the name Aberford is also comes from the name Edward. Also, there's Wallaton in Devon, and it is derived from the woman's name Wolf Gifu. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. <laughs> but, and then uh, Darling Darleton, which is in Nottinghamshire, is named for a woman whose name I absolutely cannot pronounce. So I won't even try to butcher it. So the property a woman brought with her to marriage remained as her possession. It was not given over to her husband or her husband's control. Wasn't that the same in Scandinavia? Correct. But we have much more documentation right. of that in Anglo-Saxon England. But yes, that is, and that's, this is some of the written, only written proof that of that mm -hmm. custom. When a woman got married, her husband paid her bride price, which was a mourning gift. Uh, and she retained that gift. Sometimes it was money, sometimes it was property, but it was always under her control. And when in her will, she could leave it to whomever she wished. So there are lots of existing wills of Anglo-Saxon women in which they bequeath their estates and title deeds to their offspring, which includes daughters and sometimes to their sisters and sometimes to religious communities. There is a case in which a woman left golden land to the king, obviously trying to suck up to him. And she also gave land to a church on behalf of the king for the good of his soul, which is another way to, you know, really suck up to the king. Um, Ensworth, who was the consort of King Burgred, she was not a queen, but she granted farmland to the Cathedral of Worcester, Worcester in her own name. There's a, there are wills from pre-Norman Anglo-Saxon England, which designate female heirs. In one will, a man named Wolfric left property to his daughter, but he tasked his brother with her care, but the property belonged to her. Uh, we have a woman's will in which she asked someone to watch over her son and not let anyone rob him of his lands. And the person she designated as his custodian was a woman. Another married couple left estates to a named woman. Uh, a man left his wife and daughter half the profits from all his estates, as well as their own estates. And another father granted his land equally to his sons and his daughters. A mother could disinherit her children. There is a record of a case in which a man sued his mother over a piece of land. She had apparently gotten really mad at him. We don't know why. And she had verbally bequeathed everything she owned to a kinswoman and cut him out completely. And she left not a thing to her own son. That's quoted. Wow. Her wishes were upheld in the local assembly when he took it to court. She won. Yeah, this so, really does. I mean, it sounds like really tiny things. Oh, somebody leaving some land to somebody. or But it's huge. It's huge. If you really look at it and go, these women could own property they could bequeath it to whoever whomever they wanted the property was left to them to to do what they wanted that's that's a huge deal that yes, puts it them is. basically on the same footing as men yes which is and not what we've been taught. taught 
Well, I think it's because that the whole when you mentioned the dark ages early on, I mean, that's that's a misnomer when we consider that. And I when did that come up? And it's been a while since I've researched that. Was it like in the Renaissance that the everything that came before it, everything that came before Christianity was a dark age or whatever? Right. And guess who made that? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like they acted like this was a time where there was no art no beauty. But if you look at Anglo-Saxon art or Celtic art or Viking art, it's beautiful. And that's what I was taught. I, took, I was a, I was an art major. I took art history and we, that's what we were taught. There was no art during the dark ages. Yeah. But all you have to do <laughs> is just look at even something like the, the helmet at Sutton who, I, I mean, that is a gorgeous piece of art. Yes, it was <laughs> everything in that in that burial was. Yeah. And they, and they made it sound like people just ran around wearing brown and like, and that's you, not true. Did you ever see Monty Python in the Holy Grail? Yeah. Do you remember the scene with the peasants where they're just like mucking around and the manure? And, <laughs> and I mean, that was like this, at least when I took history, when I was younger, that was the, the, the visual I mm-hmm. had of the dark ages. It was, but the Vikings, and I don't know about the Anglo-Saxons as much, but they, if they could afford it, they dyed their clothes beautiful colors. They painted oh, this Anglo-Saxons their houses. Too. Yes, they had they like in like uh, in Beowulf, you know, they wore jewels and gold, and I mean, they would dye their clothes. They didn't have certain colors, but blue and red, and I think they and had they like painted a, everything too. Yeah, they, they painted, painted their, their buildings. Houses. They painted their yeah. ships. They painted their shields. They mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. They had their their sails would be different colors, maybe. Yes. Yeah. That, t- <laughs> that term dark ages is just it's, not. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So in the supposed dark ages, <laughs> women could choose whether to marry or remain single. And they could choose to pursue a career. And we can talk about that more. But there were careers like weaving and brewing. But also. Knut made the the 11th century Danish king of England, Knut, he was a Dane, but he became the king of England. He made a law stating that no one could force a woman to marry a man she disliked. That was the 11th century. So that was a long time later. But it also kind of shows the Scandinavian mindset towards women. They had rights. Um, There is a record of a lady named Ethel Swift. And she chose not to marry, and she retired to her estate with her servants and spent her time weaving and embroidering. So embroidering was a very highly regarded skill. It was highly valued. And there is um, a record of an Anglo-Saxon woman who, after the Battle of Hastings, and her husband was killed in the Battle of Hastings, she was able to retain her estate. By in exchange for teaching embroidery to the daughter of her overlord. Wow. So that is quite quite a payment for teaching embroidery. And of course, we have some examples of their embroidery, and we know they were highly skilled. Uh, Another woman was awarded land by a bishop in exchange for her production and her care of the church vestments. Mm. So it was not a menial skill or an idle skill. It was highly regarded. It was a highly regarded art form. 
Do you know much about the Bayou Tapestry? I don't know a lot. Was it made by Anglo-Saxon women or? It was. we Norman women. I believe it was Norman women, but, okay. you know, it was women in that kingdom. And that shortly after the Norman conquest, Anglo-Saxon England didn't change on a dime. They, right. they did stay the same for a certain amount of time. That's yeah, a, except for William. He did a good job of but not right away. The, the, the earth, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just mean he did not change the legal system there right, right away. At first he kept it. Uh, and then a few years later is when he imposed the Norman rule of law. I felt so sorry for the, some of those widows of oh, the yeah. Anglo-Saxon leaders and these powerful men who they were killed or done whatever. And then these really women did become gave, chattel property. Yeah, that, that's when it, that was when it got bad. Yes. During the Anglo-Saxon period, women also had the right to divorce. And we do know that Scandinavian women also had that right. But it's specifically stated that women retained custody of their children. And the laws of Ethelbert, which is around the year 600, it states that a woman can depart from her marriage with her children and she shall have half the goods. And if the husband keeps the children, the wife will still have a share of the goods. If a woman's husband died, leaving her with children, the children belonged to her and she was able to claim child support. Now, in Norman England, that was not the case. The children did not belong to the mother. They did not stay with the mother. But in Anglo-Saxon England, it was written down that the mother did contain retain custody of the children generally. You know, it's interesting. You said that the laws of Ethelbert in 602, mm-hmm. I think at least, I'm, I don't know about people who are English and grew up learning their history, but at least as an American growing up learning. And I even took uh, English history classes when I was in college. And it was like, it was almost like English history started for us with Lindisfarne. It was like, we hardly... <laughs> We hardly know anything about some of these Anglo-Saxon kings and queens because I didn't, it wasn't until I got into college where I was like, oh, oh, okay. There were a lot of English kings before. There were a ton and a lot of English queens also. Right, exactly. It was like Alfred the Great and then on up. But it's like, oh my gosh, there was a huge rich history of of people before that. And and very interesting too. Another thing is an Anglo-Saxon woman was worth the same guild or blood money as a man of equal rank. And that also was true in Scandinavia. Pregnant women were worth their own guild plus half of the unborn child. And women were eligible to receive compensation for slain kin and also for an assault on her own person. And these laws do appear in the early Scandinavian law codes of the 11th century. So a woman could swear oaths in a court of law and her word was given the same weight as a man. That's something we don't see after the Norman conquest. So there's a a record of a suit where a man named Leofwin contested a woman named Winflid's ownership of estates. And she proved her ownership based on the testimony of female witnesses. There were no men testifying on her behalf. 
but she still won the suit. Good for her. Yes. And women were accountable for their own actions, but not those of their husband. Uh, If a man was found guilty of a crime, his wife was not liable unless she was proven to be involved. It kind of reminds me of uh, that law we have where a husband or wife can't testify against. Oh, yeah. The hostile witness, I think it's called. If the opposite is true, if a man was, I guess that happened a lot in in England after that, like if if a man, if an earl or a lord or whoever was, or a duke was accused of treason or something, their whole family was destroyed. Right. And that's what happened in the, after the Norman Conquest. After, yeah, that was after the Norman Conquest. Right. But yeah. So I guess if you think back, I guess that it is a big deal that she's not liable for his yes. action. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. So highborn women in Anglo-Saxon England were often married as peace weavers, which is something we discussed with Patricia Bracewell last time. That's what Emma of Normandy was. Uh, It was to ensure friendly relations between families. But those highborn women could wield a great deal of power. And in our next episode, we will go over quite a number of them and tell you about their stories. That should be great. Very interesting. Yeah. And little known. Very little known. I mean, a couple of these women, I didn't even know about them. Me too. I was amazed. Yeah. I think Ethelfled and Hild were the only two. So there's a couple little teasers about who we're going to talk about next time. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Thanks for listening. You can find Johanna at johannawittenberg.com, where you'll find a free short story, a prequel to her Norse Queen series. And you can find me, KS, at ksbarton.com, where you can also find a free short story for me, a prequel to my Norse family series. See you next time.